The purpose of this activity is to expand the reach of chest content through awareness, critique, and discussion. All articles have undergone peer review for methodological rigor and audience relevance. Any views asserted are those of the speakers and are not endorsed by chest. Listeners should be aware that speakers' opinions may vary and are advised to read the full corresponding journal articles for complete context. This content should not be used as a basis for medical advice or treatment, nor should it substitute the judgment used by clinicians in the practice of evidence-based medicine. Well, hello, and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Gretchen Winter. On behalf of Chess, I would like to welcome you to this Chest Journal podcast. I'm Dr. Gretchen Winter, and I am your Chest Podcast moderator. Thank you all for joining us today for our discussion of whether it is ethically permissible to consider social determinants of health in allocation of medical resources. We are fortunate to have Dr. Monica Peake and Dr. John Hick as our guests. Dr. Peake and her colleagues wrote the point side of this debate. Considering social determinants of health is ethically permissible and fair allocation of scarce medical resources during the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Peake is an internal medicine physician and the Ellen H. Block Professor of Health Justice at the University of Chicago, where she also serves as the Associate Director for the McLean Center for Clinical Medical Ethics. She is a nationally recognized expert in health equity and was a member of the National Academies of Medicine Workshop Series Committee on the Evolving Crisis Standards of Care and Lessons from COVID-19. Now, Dr. Hick and his colleagues wrote the counterpoint on this topic. Dr. Hick is an emergency physician at Hennepin Healthcare in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and is a professor of emergency medicine at the University of Minnesota. He has published key papers on crisis care and triage of ventilators and has been a member of or co-chaired each of the Institute of Medicine and National Academies of Medicine committees on crisis standards of care. Thanks so much for having me today. Yes, thanks so much. So to get us started, Dr. Peake, you discuss how structural racism has led to disparities in COVID-19 outcomes through both individual risk and place-based risk mechanisms. Can you please explain those risks and the mechanisms to our listeners? Absolutely. Um, and thank you again for this opportunity. Um, what I think is also important for people to understand when we talk about structural racism is to define that. So what that really just means is structural inequities. So unequal access to goods, resources, opportunities, or risks that are based on race. And so uh, and then that can have ultimately impacts on health. And so for COVID, we saw that at the individual level, um, there is differential exposure to the COVID virus. And so um, that meant that people who are racial and ethnic minorities were more likely to be in those essential worker jobs that were public facing. So, and why is that? Well, we have to go back and think about limited opportunities for um, equal education, equal employment opportunities, those kinds of things that limited people's ability to have um, higher paying jobs. 
Um, the second um, individual risk comes through an increased burden of comorbid conditions. So we know that um, chronic discrimination through the hypo, um, <laughs> hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, HPA axis, causes a number of uh, dysregulation mechanisms in the body that ultimately leads to increased risk for hypertension, cardiovascular disease, asthma, obesity, and a number of other chronic medical problems that we know now are associated with worse outcomes for COVID. And so it's not just a higher burden of disease, but a higher burden of disease for COVID-related things. Um, and then we just think about um, how structural inequities are typically thought of decreased access as far as income and insurance, and so people are, have less access to healthcare for screening, testing, and treatment for COVID. So those are all the individual risks that put people who are vulnerable, marginalized, um, at increased risk for exposure um, and uh, to suffer um, as related to COVID. And then there's the place-based risk, so where you live. And this is how people think about where your zip code may be important and more important than your genetic code. And that has to do with our history of racial residential segregation. Um, and this is not segregation by choice, but legalized redlining policies where uh, there was investment or disinvestment in communities on, based on race. And so the African-American communities where people were forced to live had less investment. And over time, those communities, when you look at how they were structured, are the buildings that have older housing that is more poorly ventilated, has more people living in them, more densely populated. Those communities have fewer resources to help people shelter in place. And so all of the things that we were asking people to avoid during the pandemic um, or, the, or the things that made it more likely for the virus to, to spread rapidly in those communities. So in general, these things are bad for health, but they were particularly bad for this COVID pandemic. Absolutely. Now, you both agree that we need to implement measures to counteract these social determinants of health that lead to healthcare disparities for community-based interventions. So, Dr. Hick, can you discuss what tools there are and what we can use them and, and how to, to help improve these community-based interventions and decrease those disparities? Yeah, just, and just a very few of these tools that are in common use in the public health realm. The first would be the uh, Area Deprivation Index, or ADI. Those are census blocks that are combined, so about 100 to 900 block areas, depending on, um, you know, how it's mapped, that have to do with, you know, income, employment, education, housing, uh, and basically allow us to, you know, look very carefully at what are the, the highest risk communities, your highest risk subsets of communities in our areas that we can direct, you know, information, trust building, vaccination, testing, um, early treatments, you know, better physical, better medical care, um, you know, both uh, mental as well as physical, um, and hopefully, you know, prevent people from getting sick and, and winding up in the hospital. The social vulnerability index takes into account a number of those same things, but also includes uh, different racial groups. However, that data is provided at the county level and thus is, is much less useful in jurisdictions like mine where we have uh, very wide, you know, changes over the course of different zip codes in different areas as to our, you know, ethnic and, and socioeconomic makeups. 
Um, another thing that I think, you know, and again, these are areas where, you know, Monica and I and, and Doug White and all the authors, you know, both the point and the counterpoint here agree, you know, very broadly on is that we have a long way to go uh, in correcting these structural factors, and we really need to work on that upstream end uh, in order to do that better. We also, once people get sick, we have to make sure that equal access to care is provided. And so those load balancing mechanisms between hospitals to make sure we don't have inner city core hospitals like Elmhurst in New York City and other places and, you know, that were affected similarly, especially during the first wave, being very, very overloaded in comparison to other hospitals in that general region. So I feel that load balancing is another area that uh, can provide a key step to providing equitable access to care. And, and that really is what providing a consistent level of care across the region um, and what crisis standards of care is really about. Thank you. So, Dr. Peake, you mm -hmm. argue that to triage based on medical prognosis alone would actually worsen disparities to minorities, people with disabilities, and low-income persons. Can you discuss the mechanisms by which that would potentially worsen disparities? Sure. Um, and uh, I would also just like to um, echo what Dr. Hicks said about the importance of load balancing um, and sharing the responsibility for all hospitals. Um, that's something that we did not see in the earlier waves of the pandemic um, and that every time we see a spike during the winter season, um, we're going to need to sort of push for that. Um, so there are three reasons that we that we see um, that a medical prognosis only would exacerbate racial disparities. The first two seem very similar, um, but they're uh, related, but um, not not exactly the same. The first is that um, marginalized groups um, who carry a higher burden of comorbid diseases that I was just talking about. Um, often present with a higher severity of illness. Um, so they have higher comorbid diseases, decreased access to health care, and then a lot of times there's a lot of built-up institutional distrust, and so they may have delayed seeking care um, because they don't have the, the sense that this healthcare system may be doing good things for them. Um, and so we already have data from the pandemic from Chicago, New Haven, and other cities that show that African Americans and other um, minority groups have worse survival pro prognosis when they present at triage. And so the increased severity of illness um, at presentation means that there's going to need to be um, a higher number of people who are um, with limited beds, needing those beds who are racial ethnic minorities. Um, the second thing is that African, there's a higher uh, number of African Americans who are disproportionately requiring ICU services. And so when sh uh, beds are short, that means that there will disproportionately be a number of African Americans who die from not getting a bed. Um, and so the third thing that has come out more recently um, with literature that I was uh, fortunate to be a co-author on and others who've done the same thing is show that SOFA, which is the, the means that we use to estimate survival during an ICU, um, overestimates mortality in African-Americans. And so it uh, is deprioritizing um, African-Americans for these critical services. Um, and so and one of the studies showed that 16% of African-Americans would have been deprioritized during, during the triage process. And so we know that marginalized groups 
have poor health because of a lot of structural equity inequities, and then they get to the healthcare system and then are sort of put to the back of the line. And part of the reason they're in the back of the line is because we have systems and models that aren't quite accurately predicting their ability to survive um, during the ICU stay in the first place. And you outlined several potential strategies to mitigate health inequities during ICU triage. I'd love to hear you talk about those a little. Sure. So I think that we have to embrace a portfolio of things to mitigate inequities. Um, so load balancing, having you know a system in place for hospital transfers, just like we do for strokes and other emergencies. Um, so this is just one. Um, strategy amongst many that we should be employing. We got to racial inequities from a number of things that fell through the cracks. Um, and we're going to get to equity by embracing a number of strategies, not just one. Um, so one of the things that um, some of the authors have written about previously is thinking about prioritizing essential workers um, considering a longer-term life expectancy, um, giving more priority to younger populations because it's really a privilege to live to be old. Um, and it's those who are disabled, those who are doing the, you know, the hardest work in the country um, that is sort of physically wearing down the bodies and increasing the allostatic load. Those are the racial and ethnic minorities that don't get to live uh, to, to, be as long, to be as old. And so um, thinking more about younger populations populations and what their population curves look like, you know, increases some, some equitable distribution. But specifically, what we were talking about in this paper is adding a correction factor based on uh, the area deprivation index that Dr. Hick was talking about earlier. The reason that that correlates so well with health is because it's based on those patterns of racialized residential segregation that I was mentioning earlier. These are purposeful policies that were put in place right after World War II to purposely invest or disinvest in communities. And that is why now um, communities have more resources, the people in those communities have higher or lower rates of education and employment, it's not sort of a random, you know, occurrence of nature um, that the, there's clustering geographically um, and by race of, of these things in our, in our society. And so what we're saying is that we should use neighborhood-level disadvantage, not uh, individual-level race, but neighborhood-level disadvantage um, as a correction factor. And so for people who are coming from those neighborhoods with the highest level of disadvantage, disadvantage um, to try and decrease the amount of disparity that we know will happen um, to um, add that to the triage calculation. And we already know that the triage calculations are not perfect. Um, nothing is perfect, um, but we have to decide that we are going to move forward um, against disparities towards equity, knowing that the status quo of absolute disparities is not going to be acceptable. And that during a time of crisis, when we're playing musical chairs and there are going to not be enough chairs for everyone, not enough beds, not enough resources, and the disparities will worsen. We already have existing disparities, but the disparities will worsen, um, particularly in the ICU setting that that is not going to be an acceptable option and that we have to proactively think about 
what is the infrastructure in place, what are the designs in place, and how can we change those now (laughs) before the crisis comes to make sure that we optimize the equity that's going to be in place. Now, Dr. Hick, you argue that the ADI and similar scores were designed to be used in mitigation efforts rather than for treatment. So why do you argue that these scores should not be used for treatment allocation? Oh, great question. And just a couple of comments on a couple of other things that Monica said. You know, it's so important that if you have a disproportionate, um, you know, effect on a racial group that is presenting to the hospital, that they are able to occupy those beds in relation to the percent of patients presenting. So if black patients are presenting at twice the rates, they should have twice the ICU beds as as the other individuals. And so, you know, that's why the load balancing is so important here because that is really a principal driver of equity. And we run into, you know, significant disparities we really can't uh, correct for at the individual facility level if we're not doing that balancing. So I think that's so important. You know, as to the the, um, additional underlying conditions and, and trust issues with, you know, the House of Medicine causing people to present later and with more severe disease, I'm not sure that's actually, you know, borne out necessarily, at least in some studies like the one by Ross Driscoll uh, in American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care did not show that, that those, you know, patients from uh, black, um, you know, black, black groups uh, did not present with more advanced disease at the time of presentation. The age question, and, and this is why I'm very reluctant to think that we can get to a place of including more social factors in, um, you know, critical care triage is because we have struggled despite fairly general acceptance of, of Daniel's fair innings and, and other arguments for prioritizing younger individuals for access to critical care services, we've never come up with the thresholds. And we also can't legally do that because the Office of Civil Rights has been very clear that if you make a decision based on age that is not clearly related to that as an independent prognostic factor, that that is simply not legal. Um, so, when it comes down to trying to factor in these social considerations, we've got to have community consensus, not just a provider thinking it's the right thing to do. We have to have community consensus on what we're correcting and exactly why. The ADI is structured around structural inequity, education, employment, things like that. It doesn't take race into account. So if we're using ADI as a proxy for race, we have to be very clear about that, and we have to be very clear what racial groups is designed to apply to. Is it black and indigenous only? Is it Latinx? Is it Asian? Is it Indian? Um, do we intend it to apply to our skilled nursing facility, disabled, incarcerated, you know, transgendered, other groups that are clearly discriminated against or, or have certain structural limitations to their care? So what's, what are we correcting? Why are we correcting it? What is the degree of correction that the community wants us to weigh in addition to medical prognosis? And then what is the measure that we're using to get at that? So, and this is where age seems fairly obvious, but, but race is not. So if you have Native Americans and they struggle within tribes to assign benefits and, and have had to set thresholds for a percentage of you know, Native American blood and and set thresholds for, you know, who will receive benefits. And we would be stuck trying to do uh, the same sorts of things. I think um, the ADI suffers first and foremost because it's a geographic tool. And the Office of Civil Rights is very clear. You have to do an individualized patient assessment. And so when we're talking about somebody who might reside in a $1.5 million flat that happens to be in a very high ADI index area, 
and you compare that to a patient in the next bed who does not live in that area, lives a few blocks outside of that area, but has all of the poor social determinants of health that we wanted to try to correct with this factor, um, that's where the precision comes in. It works wonderfully when we're doing vaccination, when we're doing campaigns, because we know that those areas are going to suffer the consequences of those disadvantages. And even if we miss the mark, we're still going to benefit the community. Here, if we miss the mark at all, there's immediate consequences, um, you know, moral, clinical, uh, and even legal consequences to using uh, a population-based measure. It's kind of the same thing with SOFA. SOFA was designed as a retrospective research tool. Um, I'm partially to blame for its use you know, in crisis standards of care because I published one of the first papers on it. And I still think it has utility when you compare acuity of patients on an average between units, for example. Um, but at the bedside for an individual patient, especially one suffering from a primarily respiratory disease, it's pretty meaningless. And especially, as Monica says, if you don't control for pre-existing renal impairment, it becomes a very useless score. But then, unfortunately, one that a lot of state plans spent a lot of time on when they should have been spending time on the processes for best practices and the processes for load balancing. So, Dr. Hick, I'd also like you to talk on the legal and operational differences between allocating individual treatments and population-based interventions. Yeah, great question. And, and this is where it's so hard sometimes to translate our ethical ideals into ethically operational practices. And that's why, you know, even with age, where a lot of the population agrees on prioritizing younger, you know, um, fairly small but very significant groups like our, you know, indigenous population, our Hmong population here in Minnesota, they feel like they definitely want to offer the resources to the elders. So, you know, getting some degree of consensus uh, on those things first and, and defining operationally, as I mentioned in that strategy of the community and, and what and how much and what measures, those operational details are extremely difficult to come to consensus on. And then we run into the, the legal issues, uh, which unfortunately in, in Minnesota we thought we had an opportunity with monoclonal antibodies because the emergency use authorization uh, did include races as a consideration. And we had very good evidence from a couple major healthcare systems that we had um, adverse uh, adverse outcomes uh, with BIPOC status as an independent risk factor apart from the others that we were looking at. And so we decided to recommend incorporation of um, that as far as points that we, you know, awarded in, in our scoring system for, for priority for monoclonal antibodies uh, on the basis of BIPOC community status. And that generated an, a fairly immediate lawsuit uh, from America First Legal, and I'm not going to get into the my disgust with some of their techniques. But I think um, the, the point of it being that it is extraordinarily difficult to incorporate any social or race-based factors into treatment decisions because there is direct harm involved. So with population-based interventions, it's very difficult to show direct harm, and we can almost always show benefit to the community at large. But when you talk about denying one individual a treatment who then has a complication and you awarded it to another individual and you did that to at least a degree based on a social factor or based on a factor that Office of Civil Rights would consider off limits, then you're on pretty thin ice. And the Attorney General's office in the state of Minnesota looked at it and they said, we, th this is not defensible, um, and unfortunately we're going to have to remove these criteria. So uh, we did, unfortunately, and 
And that's where we are. And honestly, any critical care triage, I have a lot of misgivings about how possible it is without a degree of immunity uh, from, you know, the executive branch in each state. Uh, we had an episode here where there was a restraining order against a hospital to prevent a ventilator from being taken away from a patient who was receiving what the hospital thought was futile care uh, for COVID and, and COVID-related multi-organ failure. And if that's, you know, what we're dealing with with futile care, I'm not sure that we're going to be able to really structurally put into place, you know, some of the triage systems that, that might offer us them the best shot at equity, which is going to leave us, unfortunately, in a position where there's going to be a lot more implicit triage, a lot more bedside ad hoc triage that is much more subject to bias and much more subject to problems than if we have more of a proactive approach and, and an agreed upon set of criteria and systems. And Dr. Peek, how do you respond to those concerns? Great, um, <laughs> there, there are a lot of them. Um, so I would uh, start by saying that first, um, we're not suggesting that we only use the ADI or only use social criteria to make triage decisions. Um, what we have said is that the ADI um, be used to give a point to an existing triage protocol. So that would be thinking about the individual characteristics as well as starting to think about the neighborhood characteristics that may have shaped the life circumstances um, and the health of that person in a, in a way that is detrimental and trying to then give that person back some equity. So um, I think it's a false dichotomy to think of it as an either or. At least that's a, it's not the, the way that we're representing it. We're, we're saying, yes, absolutely, do think about those individual medical things, but don't only think about the medical things. You have to also think about whole Realistically, what um, has shaped that person's life to ultimately end up to their health. Um, the second is that um, we are recommending saying that a person who is living in a given neighborhood takes that person's ADI from that neighborhood. And if it's at 8, 9, or 10, on a, it's a scale of 1 to 10, then that person, regardless of what race they are, um, should be prioritized. And so we're not saying that um, you know, ADI, we're not saying ADI is a proxy for race, but really um, any race or ethnic group that we choose uh, um, uh, is, is what we say because then we're, we're uncoupling ADI from race. You know, we, we don't say that we're going to use ADI in theory, but in reality, we just use race. No, we're saying that we use ADI, and then we use ADI. So people coming in, we have their address. Um, it takes less than 60 seconds um, to pull that information from the EMR and to add it to um, existing uh, protocols um, and triage things. And so um, it's, a, it's a great tool, um, has information, as we already mentioned, from the neighborhood and can be easily folded into existing protocols. Um, that, and again, it's separate from race. It doesn't matter uh, the race of the person, but, but because our society has been so racially segregated, because our school systems have been so racially segregated, because so many of our systems continue to be racially segregated, it um, will, for the most part, capture a lot of that. Will it capture all of it? Absolutely not. Well, do we have rich people living in 
you know, disadvantaged communities? Yes. Do we have black people that are not living in disadvantaged communities? Yes. But that is the case with all of our clinical algorithms that we use. We use the Framingham study um, as a basis for thinking about cardiovascular risk, knowing that, you know, people in Framingham, Massachusetts, were all pretty much white people, but we use it for our entire population. So we use the best tools that we have available to us to try and figure out the risks for the person that is in front of us. Um, and we don't let the, you know, the best that we have um, keep us from doing anything at all. And so I think that is the question that we have. You know, do we do nothing um, and stand with the status quo, which is horrible disparities, or do we try and make a step forward to try and mitigate the disparities that we're looking at? Um, the other is that no one is suggesting that we use the implicit biases um, as the, the benchmark for making decisions. Everyone is saying that uh, individual physicians should be not be making these uh, uh, calls at the bedside, um, that we should be having, you know, uh, triage officers uh, for if no other reason than to just mitigate the, the mental stress, right, Tri a triage team so that uh, that are using, you know, protocols so that there are processes and people and mechanisms in place so that it's not a biased decision that an overwhelmed, taxed, you know, potentially you know, biased physician could be making these decisions in the heat of the night. But no, we have, you know, um, decisions that would be that, that would be made that someone, you know, on a Tuesday at 3 p.m. would arrive at the same decision, you know, two weeks later, uh, you know, at a 5 p.m. Um, and, and ultimately, that's what we're working towards. And adding new things to those processes doesn't mean that the overall structure changes. It just means that we're trying to fine-tune ways in which the system is trying to address disparities. We have to plan for equity. We know that if we don't plan for it, we ultimately end up in, in with inequity. And I totally agree with Dr. Hick in that, you know, ultimately we want a society where the marginalized get what they deserve, where if there are, you know, twice as many people who have a disease that they would have twice as many beds. But we see that that doesn't happen. We saw that that didn't happen even in the first wave of this pandemic where, um, people who were lower risk for COVID were the first ones who got, you know, testing, the first ones who got the vaccines. And this is when the vaccines were in high demand um, and were not able to be, you know, equally distributed. Despite all of the work that went in from the National Academy of Medicine, from, you know, the CDC's committee, Still, the vaccinations were distributed in a way that made absolutely no sense and had all this state-level variation. You saw governors giving them to, you know, people that were, you know, donors to the presidential campaign. You saw individual citizens pretending to be essential workers and racial minorities when they were not. You saw all sorts of mayhem happening where privileged people were trying to get access to something that they did not deserve, you know, based on their place in line, based on their medical health, um, but they felt like they really deserved um, and were going to get it and did get it. And so our society does not work fairly. And so unless we plan for equity, 
we will always have inequity. And so what uh, we are suggesting merely is that we plan for it. The last um, comment that I will make is that, you know, bless the Office of Civil Rights. <laughs> they have been working very hard to maintain uh, our civil rights. Um, but they have seen things like uh, the Philadelphia recommendations, which have incorporated the ADI to allocate scarce COVID therapies um, and how they are allocating their ventilators. They've reviewed them and have seen no objection in the, the, Philadelphia, the, the Pennsylvania plans. And so there's not um, a, con, you know, a consistent sort of distaste for these population level metrics applied within the hospital setting. Um, and the very last thing that I will say is that we have to always remember that just because it's legal, it does not mean that it is right. Our country has been built on, you know, slavery was legal. Our um, our system of race-based apartheid, our, you know, segregation was legal. We had many things in this country that have been legal but have been extremely wrong. And so while we are you know, working towards equity, while we are working towards a more perfect union, we have to think about what is the ethical thing to do, not only what is the legal thing to do. And so I would continue to have us move in the direction of, you know, several things, you know, what is the best thing for, you know, for our country? You know, how can we protect those who are the most vulnerable and marginalized? And how can we do the best that we can um, given the resources that we have to make these choices and to not let, you know, perfect be enemy of the good and to think and to not have a false dichotomy that we only have one choice. We have multiple tools that we should be employing. Yes, absolutely, working um, in community settings, but we should also be doing everything we can in every setting possible to mitigate disparities as we see them. Thank you, Dr. Peek and Dr. Hick. As we finish up this discussion, can you each please give our listeners a closing thought on what you want them to take away from this discussion? Dr. Peek, why don't you go first? I would just say that we have to plan for equity in everything that we do, um, including thinking about crisis standards of care and including uh, as they apply to ICU allocation of scarce resources. And Dr. Hick, how about you? I would echo that we need to plan for equity in, in everything that we do, but we need to be very careful when we're making individual decisions about life-saving therapies that precision is of the utmost importance. And if we, inter if we accidentally and systematically build in that we are benefiting individuals that have no cause to benefit in the system while depriving individuals that might have significant cause to benefit, uh, that is a huge problem ethically, morally, legally. The highest ADI indice areas in Minnesota tend to be very rural, poor, and white. And so we need to think very carefully about whether or not ADI uh, is a valid tool and whether or not it is reinforcing to any degree the community consensus on what we're correcting and why we're correcting it. So I think we have to use the utmost caution when we're talking about life-saving therapies and introducing social factors and be very clear on exactly what the community supports. Well, I'd like to thank Dr. Hick and Dr. Peek for a great discussion on an interesting topic. And a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Gretchen Winter, and this is a chess podcast. Until next time. <laughs>